Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 251 with Mike Lewis. I think you will really enjoy hearing from Mike because he's a guy who's done it, living the dream. He's talking about what it takes to take that leap associated with exiting something that's kind of comfortable and predictable into something that's new and exciting and different that maybe you've been thinking about for a while, but there's some risk there. So you're going to learn one, actionable ways to tune into your internal voice and deepest desires. Two, when it's time to make the jump, and three, the right mindset for taking your jump. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced here, that's on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F251. And while you're there, I hope you'll check out some of our cool resources. One I'll point you to right now is the 10 Days to Winning at Work email course. So that is a collection of the most bite-sized actionable tips from my enhanced thinking collaboration training programs, which historically have slashed, on average, 86 minutes of waste per person per week out of there. So you got more free time to have cool, strategic, creative work stuff or just head home early. So that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com, the 10 days to winning at work email course. Now here is Mike's story. Mike Lewis is the founder and CEO of Win to Jump, a global curated community featuring the individuals, stories, and ideas relating to leaving something comfortable in order to pursue a passion. Launched in 2016, the platform has attracted millions of impressions through digital and print media, in-person experiences, and collaborations with leading brands, including Airbnb and Lululemon. In January 2018, his book, When to Jump, If the Job You Have Isn't the Life You Want, by Henry Holt Macmillan, releases worldwide. This book features over 40 case studies with insights, frameworks, and guidance around when to pursue a passion. And here is Mike. Mike, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I'd love it if we could start. It's fun that this is not only a fun fact, but a key part of the story behind your wisdom. But could you tell us the tale? behind you becoming the 112th best squash player in the world. Sure. Absolutely. And thanks again for having me. It's a, it's a real treat to be on. I grew up in Southern California. My dad was a squash player. For those who don't know squash, you are in the majority. It is a sport like racquetball or even like tennis indoors. But west of New York City, there really aren't many players who compete at the high levels, particularly as a junior, as a kid. When I was 14 years old and discovering the sport, my dad had obviously played it before. Like I said, he had played on the East Coast as a naval surgeon, and our family moved. I was born in the city, but moved to the South and then to Santa Barbara. And when I was 14, came across the the sport on my own, actually, ironically, at the one gym that had four courts or five courts within 100 miles from our town, and it just happened to be down the road. So I fell in love with it, and I think I loved the idea of the adventure behind it. The idea that I could really create my own story from playing sport and and really go my own path with it. So at that point, I thought, I'm going to do this someday. I just didn't know exactly how that would happen. There was probably five of us, like I said, west of New York City who were competing as kids. And first, I had to get better to play in college. At at some point, I'd say, well, if I could do that, maybe I could get get even better. And shortly after I, I, I started playing, there was a traveling pro who was coming through town for a tournament we hosted at our local club. And I remember I was around 14. He was, I think, just five, six years older. 
but described this adventure of playing a sport we both adored and using it as a way to see the world, playing on mountains in Brazil and cities in Asia and towns that dotted the Pacific. And I just knew at some point I would do that. So like I said, I found a way to get to play in college. I, I got to play for four years. I was the captain of the team my senior year. And then while I was in the working world for several years going forward after graduation, I just kept it up. And I said to myself, if I can just keep going and find a way to get better and eventually get sponsors and maybe even compete part-time, you know, I'll be able to maybe someday be able to, to do this full-time for a bit. So long story short, which we can get into, but I was able to do it and get as high as my goal was to break 200 in the world. And I got to 112. That's good. Uh, it's so fun. As you relay the story, it's like, I want to play squash and travel the world. It sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it really was awesome. <laughs> and so and I, now I'm just so curious. And, but, but what fascinates me when it comes to professional anything and sports, I think is interesting in that world, particularly because I think if you're like the 112th best basketball player or American football player, there are huge financial rewards. Can you enlighten us? What sort of compensation does a 112th best squash player in the world see? Well, the short answer is not a lot. Uh, the pro squash tour is like the pro tennis tour, but the ugly stepsister almost. So you've got your Wimbledons of the world, but because we are a lot less popular and visible and don't have the marketing dollars and this, the brand sponsorships or the TV deals, there just isn't that much money. So Wimbledon has several million bucks for the men's and women's champion. The Wimbledon in our world, you know, the champion might bring home 50K, you know, at most. There is money in endorsements and camps and other stuff, but largely there's just not much money. And then where I play in 112th in the world, you know, at my peak, and you have to remember, I started, I think, at 380 or something. You really are getting off the bottom in what was akin to the AAA satellite tour of uh, our version of, of built Bull Durham in the minor leagues. And it's nothing against those tournaments, but those were 16, 32 guys in a draw splitting $5,000. Right. Okay. And yeah, you just wouldn't bring much back from that. So largely what the opportunity provided was exposure. You could get better. You could get yourself off the, the ground and get up the ladder a bit. But also it was the experience. A lot of these tournaments offered to pair you with host families just like how we hosted that gentleman coming through town when I was a kid. That's how I spent nearly every night of my you know, 200,000 mile, 50 something country, nearly two year adventure uh, was with other people along the way. You know, I don't know why the, the first question that comes to mind when you mentioned all these different host families is what have you settled in on as optimal mattresses and pillows uh, since you've tried them all? You know what? It depends on the country and the continent. Some places <laughs> I was just lucky to have I mean, I remember my first place I stayed was right before I left Bain Capital, where I was working, I ran into a woman right nearby. I was going back to work after going to the gym. And she had told me, oh, you got to play in the South Pacific. And I Googled when I went back to my office, squash in Fiji, and a squash tournament in, in Tahiti popped up. And like two weeks later, I was staying with the organizer of the tournament under a mosquito net in his old, daughter's former childhood bedroom, you know, that was decorated with princesses and, and glow in the dark stars. And that I can tell you is not the Ritz Carlton, but it was what I was hoping for. We picked the daughters up from school. We went to family outings. There was a birthday party, their neighbors that I went to. I sang karaoke. I mean, it was so much more than just the squash. That's so cool. Okay. 
All right. Well, so then uh, for everyone salivating, wanting to have their own sort of adventure in their own kind of a way, why don't you lay out for us what's when to jump all about and can we hear who it's for and, and why it's important now? Yeah, absolutely. So when to jump really came out of my own personal struggle to figure out when I was supposed to chase this dream. Like I said, it had been years, you know, a decade since I first had this little voice in my head. And I was going about my job every day, and I'm sure you know folks listening to the show can relate. You start to get a sense of circularity to your life. I knew what I had to do at work. It was fine. There was nothing too treacherous I could mess up. I kind of knew the playbook like the back of my hand. And yet on the other side, there was this thing I really wanted to do. So I first Googled when to chase dreams because I was like, well, when do you do it? And what I found was stuff that's either too prescriptive, you know, too self-healthy, or too inspirational where it's almost just lost in the fluff of what you're actually supposed to you know, apply to your own life. And so where I came out on it was, well, what if I just talked to people who left something comfortable to go do what they cared about? And I collected their stories, and those stories could become proof that it wasn't totally insane for me to do this. And that's what I did. I, I just started reaching out to people, you know, first friends of friends, then colleagues, uh, then passengers on the bus next to me, then a bartender down the street. And then all of a sudden, you know, as you start to peel back the layers, more and more stories became available. And what was fascinating was that I wasn't getting just that sexy, glossed over photo scoop or snapshot of the update from LinkedIn that only talks about the good stuff. This was like the nitty gritty, unsexy steps that come with chasing your dream. And people were giving highly vulnerable, real, honest versions of what that looks like. And so To me, that's what I wanted. That's what made it feel realistic. They talked about the middle of that journey. And so I remember speaking to a woman who was a Wall Street banker turned cyclist. And she had left Wall Street to try being a cyclist and had largely failed for a while, but ended up making, after years and years, the Olympic team and competed in London and then Rio. And the conversation I thought would go something like this. How was it to be a cyclist? It was amazing. I made the Olympics. And that would kind of be it. And instead, it was, how was it to be a cyclist? And she was saying, well, here's the hardest conversation I had with myself. Here's what I was most scared of. Here's what failure tasted like. Here's why I kept going anyway. And when I hung up, this was January of 2013, I sketched a cover page to what I would call when to jump. And I wanted to make a book of these stories with ideas and insights, but also to be able to to create a space and a community where people could come together have good drinks and snacks and food and share ideas and stories with people in real life in a non-awkward, weird way and come together. And so that was the idea. I told a buddy of mine I would would make this someday. I put it on the back burner. I collected, I think I had one story from the U.S. Senator from Maine, Angus King. That was the one I had in the can. And then I kind of put it on the back burner, like I said. And a year and a half later, I had collected these stories anecdotally, really to give myself permission to jump. I had trained nights and weekends. I'd collected sponsors. I'd played anywhere I could, whenever I could, took sick days and holidays and half days. I had collected some sponsors using some material I put together at work on our own slideshow deck, presentation templates, and all these different things where all of a sudden the jump became more real. And so I I left. I moved to New Zealand like I said, six months turned into nearly two years. And sadly, while I was gone, my buddy who was next to me at work 
who I had confided in around this idea of when to jump, uh, passed away in an accident. And at that point, I said, I need to finish this project. And, you know, fortunately had the support of his brother and sister to, and we talked and I was able to dedicate the project to him. And over time, more, more people came forward with stories, you know, from Michael Lewis, the finance author who wrote Liars, Poker and Moneyball and the Undoing Project to the second baseman for the Cubs who left the Cubs to go to college all the way to the first female bishop in the Anglican church who left PR to go into the church. So I had all of these interesting stories and slowly I was able to create a framework from the themes that I saw that kept coming back up again and again. And I came back in the end of 2015 and was approached by book folks, signed a book deal of this book that's now coming out January 9th, When to Jump If the Job You Have Isn't the Life You Want. And it's 44 of my favorite stories with a framework that I call the jump curve. And it follows you through the different phases of taking a jump. And what I found is that jumping can be for anybody. Some of us think that jumping is about changing jobs and moving to Bali and starting a company and doing drastic things. But what I found is that a jump is really having agency over your life. It's about saying, okay, I want to change something, whether it's the way that I commute to work, whether it's a hobby that I want to develop or a new language I want to learn or moving cities with my job, maybe going for an internal promotion. But I think there's this idea that you can do it. It just might not be pretty. And I think When to Jump exposes that through our community. And so when I signed the book deal, I ended up using the money to bootstrap a, a platform. And the platform has a bunch of different facets. We have a festival every year called Jump Club, which is part music festival, part Beers with Friends, part speaker series. Cheryl Sandberg keynoted our first speakers, our first Jump Club last year. She wrote the forward to the book. Our festival grew nearly double to a weekend this year in New York. And I think we'll be in, in London next year in October of 2018. We started working with brands and we started to curate stories and we, and we launched a podcast that's now a top 10 business podcast on iTunes all around these conversations. And so what I found most, I think, compelling is that there isn't one way to jump. Everyone's got their own jumps to make, but it really helps to know that you're not alone and that everyone goes through these hardships when they decide to make that step into the unknown. And oftentimes the unknown is what will deliver the best parts of your jump. All right. Well, this is juicy stuff. And, and I want to go in deep on the jump curve. And But I want to maybe first say, I'm thinking maybe this is sort of step zero, if you will. But the decision that a jump is worth doing in the first place, like uh, not so much a how, but whether to jump. And, and so I'd like to, to start by getting your take on, you know, how do you go about framing up and thinking through that very initial part of the equation? Well, the first piece of the jump curve talks about listen to the little voice. And I think, like you said, step zero would be to just acknowledge what you're thinking about and what your feelings that are that keep coming back. Because, you know, our body doesn't lie, as former NFL running back uh, Richard Mendenhall told me when I interviewed him about his jump from football into, into writing. You know, when you find yourself going to certain interests or ideas or spending your time in certain ways, you know, those are usually telltale signs that there's something boiling up within you. So I don't think there's a perfect way to jump. I just believe that there are things you can do that will make sure it's a positive, worthwhile experience because you, you really don't know how it's going to end. 
but you know how it can begin. And that I think takes planning and being thoughtful and, and following this jump curve. All right. Now, when it comes to listening to the voice, can you elaborate a little bit in terms of like, what are some telltale ways that the voice or your body speaking tends to materialize the symptoms, if you will? Yeah. So it's actually listen to the little voice because if it's that little voice that you that you hear when you go to sleep at night or wake up in the morning thinking about it's something that's kind of nagging at you, but you've always ignored. And I think for me, I knew that that fear of not listening to it would ultimately be more scary of having to deal with it, just echoing and echoing and sitting there for years and years. than if I tried it, if I planned and proceeded forward with my jump and that even if it didn't work out, if I did it the right way, if I took the right steps, it would be close enough to saying, hey, I tried, it didn't work, but I did it. And I think that, you know, oftentimes that little voice is right. And we, we do a lot to drown it out, whether it's through staying super busy, through working late unnecessarily, through making our calendar super jam-packed. There's a lot of things we do to try to drown out that noise. And so if you can just kind of find some silence in your day, I know that sounds really cheesy. I am in San Francisco. We have to be pretty crunchy out here. But I would say if you can wake up and say, okay, for five minutes a day, I'm just going to sit and be bored. You know, there's, there's a reason that we come up with our best ideas in places like the shower where we can just sit and, and have nothing to do but, but let ourselves think and unwind. Our brains aren't programmed to be stimulated to the extent that social media and smartphones and notifications demand of us. So if you overwork them, they, they don't have the chance to kind of start to loosen and, and let different juices flow. And I think that's where you get that little voice. That's where you can really start is to say, okay, let's try to take out some of these noisy distractions. Let's lower some of the other voices and let's listen to what this little one has to say. Okay, that's awesome. All right, so then what's the next step? The next step is to make a plan. So we go from the aspirational to more the pragmatic. And within that, that step, it's, there's three pieces. One is financial planning. Obviously, you, you want to make sure that you're jumping with some sort of cushion to, to really give this a go. And you don't want to jump before that's prudent. The second piece is pre-jump practice, and that means really understanding what your jump is before you go. So if you want to go start a a furniture shop and selling furniture, you got to learn about how to open a business. Maybe you should talk to small business owners. You got to probably shadow or learn from a master handyman or furniture maker. Maybe you start by watching YouTube videos. There's a lot of things you can do just to start preparing for that step well before you have to jump. And that's the pre-jump practice. And then the third piece is safety net sewing. So I worked at Bain Capital for many years before I left to play squash because I knew that if that jump didn't work, and even if this jump doesn't work, I would have a foundation. You know, I'd, I had a good reputation, I think, decent enough. I worked on good projects and interesting deals. I got along with my superiors and others. And so doing that type of legwork is actually really important because I think for me, at least, I'm not courageous enough to just drop everything and jump. I really need to feel like I'm supported. And Bain was very supportive when I ultimately decided to go. So those are the things that, you know, at a high level go into making a plan. Oh, I really dig that. And so I'd like to get into a bit of detail with some of these here. Now, when it comes to the financial plan, different people prescribe different sort of metrics or X month savings. What's your take on what is financially cushioned enough? Well, it's funny. I think that it really is is interesting when you peel back all the layers of what you actually need to live. You've got 
electricity, you've got water, you probably, let's say you got need to have the internet, you've got grocery bills, you've got your rent or your mortgage, you know, you've got to have any, you know, some sort of miscellaneous for external spending purposes. But what is that five categories? Those are not 30 categories. Those are not uh, why I want to dress in this certain way or drive this certain car or get this certain latte after work, you know? And so people think that financial planning is actually tough. What it is, is really just being disciplined. It's, it's actually just cutting stuff rather than trying to say, I need to go extreme and not spend a dollar. You have finite, you know, fixed hard costs. That's not what we're saying change. It's more like on the margin, what can you start to tuck away? I'll give you an example. If you can not get a latte every day, you know, you save four or five bucks each day for a year, that's nearly 2000 bucks in your pocket. That's a pretty good cushion to start your jump on. Okay, cool. Thank you. And, and when it comes to safety debt sewing, I'd love to hear your take on, I guess, the opposite point of view, which is, the, I don't know, who is the famous general? The burn the boats guy. It's like, that's what made their, the soldiers fight oh so fiercely, is they had no option of retreat. And you're proposing just the opposite. Don't burn those boats. Nay, craft a, a, an excellent boat. How do you uh, think through uh, this two sets of ideas on that? Well, it's funny because when we get going a little bit, it will actually be a little bit of both. And I'll, I'll explain that to you when we talk again soon on the, the next steps. But the burn the boats piece is actually right to some degree. And like I said, there's a part of that that's true. But first, you should make that boat really, really nice. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Because there are going to be people from your old life and your old jump that will come in again and again. References to you as you go for a new job, potential investors in your company, or your idea, customers of your new product. And so it just behooves you to not say, well, screw it, guns blazing, you know, middle fingers up, I'm out of here. Because the world is small, especially if you're going to, let's say, leave a, a cafe or restaurant to start your own restaurant. You might want to hire someone from there eventually. You might want to get reviews from that person who runs the restaurant that you're leaving. You might want to get tips on suppliers to buy from. So there's just a lot to do in terms of really maintaining a great relationship. And I'm not saying that you will cross paths with those people. And I think we'll get to why it's important to only look forward when you jump and not be half in, half out. But I think it'll give you a peace of mind to feel like maybe I'll never run into these people again, but they all know why I'm leaving. If they were called by someone at some point needed to show a reference for me, they would say, you know what? Mike's a good guy. He's not all over the place. He didn't just show up one day, give us the finger and quit. He, he told us what he wanted to do. You know, when I started to play squash tournaments on the side, I really, I told everybody because they got bought into it. And so later when the squash tour became a real possibility, they knew that I was looking towards doing that. They knew it was something I cared about. It would have been a lot harder to massage that story if I just brought it up on everyone one day. And sure, I could have done that. But now I look forward and, and the people that I let really understand my journey are folks that are still trying to be a productive piece to this next jump. And so I think that's why you want to be able to say this, sew the safety net. Okay, cool. So, all right. So we have the, the step zero and the step one and what comes next? So the piece after that, which is really the hardest part is to say, okay, you've planned as much as you can. Now you just have to take a jump and let yourself be lucky. So that's step three. And that's a quote that Michael Lewis, the finance author gave, which is, you know, if you look for luck, you'll actually find it. It's like when he described looking for money on the ground. Grown-ups leave it everywhere. You can find it. You just have to be open to it. And the same goes for making a jump. 
if you look for those opportunities, if you make the plans, if you put down the pieces to what I call let yourself collide with other people and things, your odds are you know, going to find that luck. You just don't know it till you jump. And obviously that's just tough because we as humans, I think, are rational to some degree. And when you leave a job, you know what you're giving up in salary, benefits, comforts, et cetera. But if you don't know everything you're getting in return on the next thing, that's super hard. I hear you. So you're leaving a very clearly known quantifiable piece for a quite unknown, unquantifiable upfront piece. So could you give us some examples with regard to finding money lying around or colliding with people and opportunities? Like how does that appear in practice? In what it looks like? Right. I think that what it is, is you don't know what you don't know. So it's really putting out a voice to the, you know, it's kind of going back to that little voice. You've now turned the voice up a lot. And so you're saying, in my example, I'm leaving, I'm moving to New Zealand. Everyone knows I love squash, would love anyone's thoughts, you know, et cetera. And the classic thing is, is what happened is someone said, well, you should stay when you're in Australia with my good friend who used to belong to my gym and he just moved with his family down there. And then when I got down there, I met up with this gentleman and stayed with his family. And they said, well, we have an extra apartment. We just moved. It was a corporate housing thing. Do you want to stay there? So all of a sudden, I'm staying at no extra cost to stay with this gentleman and his family. And then he says, well, you should meet a friend of mine who's got a great podcast. And it was Rob Bell. And I go on Rob Bell's podcast last year as I was developing When to Jump. And through that podcast, I received stories that are now in the book that's coming out January 9th from people that were listening and received amazing help from friends of mine who I would never have met except for that they were listeners to Rob Bell's podcast. And Rob Bell once surfed with a guy that I stayed with because our mutual friend heard my story in the gym locker room in Boston two months before I left. Oh, I love that. Well, and, and I it, mean, that could go on forever. Oh, yeah. Too. And it feels like an adventure. You think about the, the great sort of fantasy novels or movies of our time. That, that's what happens. You go forth and then something happens, which leads to something else, which leads to something else. And it's kind of unpredictable and, and cool and exciting. And so, so I, I dig it. So it's all you really did was say to the whole world, this is what is happening. This is what I'm doing. Would love your input. And then, and then away it goes. And so I think it's pretty cool. It seems like there's value in doing that both in the broad in general. Hey, everybody. Facebook, LinkedIn, world, this is what I'm doing, as well as in the particular, like, hey, you lived in New Zealand for a little while, what do you know? And so kind of going in both directions there. Absolutely. I remember having a spreadsheet where I would just fill in anyone who had an idea for me once I said I was leaving. I think the thing that people are really missing a lot of this is, is telling other people about what you want to do, because people want to help and, and they want to help way more than you realize, but you have to tell them what they, they can help with. I love it. Okay, next step. So the last one is, and this is the fourth and final step, don't look back. And so that is the, the burning of the boats one, right? Is you don't just kind of say, well, if this doesn't work, I'll always go back. Or maybe I'll do this three days a week and two days a week here. And I'll do this nights and weekends because at some point you just got to be all in. And that's what don't look back means is once you say you're in, don't look around and say, I wonder if this is really what I should be doing. I wonder what my friends would think. What, it, what, what if this doesn't work? Like you just have to be all in. And I know it's really hard, but when you jump, you can only look straight ahead. And we've got in the book, you know, cases of failures and jumps that didn't work out. And I think that's what makes it real and understandable to say, it might not be what I thought it would be, but it's still going to be productive because I'm doing along the lines of what I enjoy. And I think that's super important is when you jump, say, 
this is going to work and I'm not going to second guess myself twice. You know, it, now it's interesting as I'm thinking about my own jump, leaving Bain consulting this time, not capital, which you're talking about how everyone confuses them. But when I left and, and said, I want to, I want to do training stuff, speaker stuff, learning and development is, is what fires me up the most. So I guess I talk about don't look back. I had a spreadsheet talk about the financial planning piece and I suppose I had some standard in which I say I will quit at this point. And I guess my standard was might be somewhat extreme or aggressive. Is like I will stop this if I have zero dollars. <laughs> that was my thought. Like, like I, I will not go into sort of insolvency or, or negative net worth, but I am willing to spend every dollar I have. And so the, I guess in terms of all in, you could call that 100%, but not 120% in terms of my all in this. And so I'd love to get your perspective on that. Like, are there any sort of parameters or rules or, or sort of tripwire covenants? I think I could think of all in, even though it sounds absolutist, still on a bit of a spectrum. Yeah, there's a great uh, line that Ethan Eiler, who invented the lift mustache, if you remember that, he was a video game marketer before he invented this this mustache that could go on cars. And he says, when you're taking a jump, he's actually featured in the book too. He says, there's this down by van down by the river fear. I think that's in a book called Cubicle Nation that talks about it, where you think that you're just going to be a failure living in a van down by the river. And that never really happens. Like it does in some cases, but that's pretty rare. And it's mostly in our mind of like the biggest failure possible. So I think what you described is the right one, which is I've made a plan-ish. I'm as sure as I can be, and now I'm going to go for it. And I think that's the way you got to be. I mean, that's otherwise, then why jump? All right. I'm with you. And and I love it. I I think that you're right with a a van down by the river. I remember I was thinking, you know, well, what happens if I spend my very last dollar? And I thought, well, it's not like I'm going to be homeless on the streets. It's, It's just I'll have to pick a job that I might not find so interesting. I always told myself that I would be doing cheese strategy, you know, like some job at a giant corporate consumer packaged goods company like Kraft or doing cheese or or something that I'm not passionate about, but I'm I'm sure probably is interesting in its own ways. Just as optimization is intrinsically interesting for me and working with smart people, but it doesn't like light me up at at the core. That's really what is at stake is either we're doing this or we're doing cheese strategy. You're not dying in, in the gutter. Right. Exactly. You're not going to die any gutter. And so, quote it. <laughs> that's, the, that's the big pulled quote from you. We're, you're not going to die in the gutter. Cool. Well, and so then we talked, a lot of these jumps have been about the, in the career context. You know, I'd love to get your perspective. You mentioned that sometimes when you're referring to jumps, it's about hobbies or learning something new. You know, how should we think about jumps in those contexts where you can totally just keep doing uh, the same job but you're still experiencing that that adventure and that jump commitment action. Yeah, I mean, I call it internal jumping. And I think there's three ways you can mix things up through the city you're in, the office location, especially if you're at the bigger company. You know, if you're at the cheese company, you could do cheese marketing in Wisconsin or in France. You can change products. You can go from cheese to detergents if it's a consumer packaged good company. Um, or maybe you could go from selling cheese and marketing it to the product and engineering of it. And so that's kind of like a a role and and type of jump switch. And so I think those three things or any combination of them would really lead to something that would be stimulating because it changes that circularity. I interviewed on our podcast, I think it comes out in a few weeks, the former CEO of 
eBay, John Donahoe, who is actually the former CEO of Bain as well. And he talks about this product or this concept, and I'm not going to remember the guy's name, but he calls it repotting, which is this idea that, you know, every 10 years or seven years or so, you want to repot, take yourself out of one pot, put it into another, let roots go again. And John, actually, if you look at what he did at eBay, they would regularly switch cubicles of folks so that people can mix up and meet other people. And I think there are just things like that, you know, even going to work a different way or talking to the person on the bus next to you, you know, that type of thing can mix things up. And it's a super incremental micro jump. That's good. Well, so Mike, tell us, what do you think would be the the very first step if, if someone is having a little bit of that little voice going on and is it just a matter of making time for the silence and the boredom or what would be the very first thing you do? Yeah, I would say absolutely. The, the thing that's no stress, low touch, lightweight, easy to do would be, I, I, and I do this every day, take five minutes in the morning before you look at technology, write in a journal or maybe just make a Google Doc or Evernote or whatever it is and write down the things that you thought you did well yesterday. Get yourself into a mindset to be thinking of the positives. And then if you want, start with one thing a day you're going to get done, like a 24-hour goal. That stuff's really easy. The the CEO of 1-800-GOT-JUNK told me about that, Brian Scudamere. And it can be as bite-sized as, okay, I'm going to research things I'm interested in today, or I'm going to talk to a musician, you know, something that just makes you curious. And I think if you give that five, 10 minutes to yourself each morning, you're going to get a little bit closer to that thing. And that'll get you on that curve, right? It'll, it'll get your voice to kind of grow a bit. It'll tune it up rather than tune it out. All right. Cool. Well, Mike, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. Yeah. I would just say, if you want to learn more, you know, our website's whentojump.com. Our podcast is also called When to Jump, and you can find it on our website, also on iTunes and all that good stuff. We have a newsletter where we keep our community up to date once a month. Actually, we just sent out our monthly one this uh, this morning. And then, of course, the book comes out January 9th. So I spent the better part of several years putting what I hope will be together, the resources, the tools, the the ideas, and the people that give people a sense of permission. And, and I hope people enjoy the book. And obviously, we'd love to hear from you if you end up reading it. Cool. All right. Well, now, could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? I would say I'd have to quote my cousin, Sheryl Sandberg, who wrote the foreword to the book, which is, and to paraphrase her, it would be a question that that I go back to, that she goes back to again and again, is what she would do if she wasn't afraid. And I think that's the most important question we can ask ourselves. Okay. And how about a favorite study or experiment or a bit of research? I thought that uh, Manoush Zomorodi, who wrote the book, Bored and Brilliant, basically found a way to see if we can lower the interactions we have on our cell phones and social media and all that and see what kind of result that would produce. And it turns out that it makes us happier. Oh, perfect. And and do you have a quick tip uh, bit from there in terms of if we wanted to get a little piece of that value, what should we do? Yeah. One thing that you can do that's super easy, which was amazing, is when you commute to work, try not to have your phone on you. So not even in your pockets, put it in your backpack or purse it does wonders. I actually now leave it when I go to the gym and it's little things like that to disassociate. Um, it really will rewire your mind and let you be bored. Oh, cool. And how about a favorite book? Memoir wise, I would say Shoe Dog by Phil Knight and his story of, of starting Nike. I mean, the ultimate jump story in many ways. And then 
in a more serious and kind of meaningful tone would be Man's Search for Meaning with Viktor Frankl, a Holocaust survivor, and ex- absolutely extraordinary man. I think everyone should read that book. Okay. And how about a favorite tool? I really like the microphone I use when I travel for podcasts. I know I don't know what this one is I'm using now, but when I travel, I have an H1 microphone and recording set. And it's just awesome. It's really simple and small, and you can actually have a lot of fun with it. You can record yourself and notes to yourself. You can record conversations, podcast interviews. It's very cool. Oh, excellent. Thank you. And how about a favorite habit? It's funny you ask that. Last night, I actually, for the first time, looked back at how many mornings I've written in my journal kind of, you know, to start the day. And I just, I write, I don't really read it again. I just write down, you know, yesterday's synopsis, kind of what I said earlier. And I knew I started January of 2015. I'm wrapping up my third year. And this year and last year, I've written 140,000 words each, which is pretty surreal to me. And so you're saying that you got pretty nice consistency in terms of every single day rocking out there. Every single day. It doesn't even occur to me not to do it now. So it's just habits. Cool. And is there a particular nugget or piece that you share that seems to really resonate with uh, your audience and community and gets them kind of retweeting and quoting back to you? Yeah, I think that it's, think of when you're 80 years old and you look back on your life, what are you going to be most proud of? What stories will you make for yourself? And I think that's what drives people to jump. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, you say whentojump.com is where it's at? Whentojump.com. It's the home base for us. Uh, newsletter sign up is on there. Podcast, you can pre-order the book. And starting in February of 2018, we will have a Jump Ambassador program, which will be a 10-week intensive online course for people who want to meet 19 other rad applicants that have been selected from around the world and, and get closer to their jump. So all that can be found on the site, whentojump.com. Oh, rad. It makes me think of Silicon Valley. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. And you have a final challenge or call to action you'd issue to folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs. Well, I would just say, write down what your goal is. It's a perfect time. Say, what, what at the end of 2018, what does your job look like? What are you doing? How are you crushing it? To say Silicon Valley terms. Okay, cool. Well, Mike, thank you so much for taking this time and, and sharing the goods. I wish you and, and all of your jumpers uh, lots of luck in their adventures. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. hope this was helpful. I really love Mike's take on quieting down and the power that that has, because I think so often you might feel a little bit of you know, discomfort or dissonance associated with, oh, I'm not really doing the things I want, I'm not really living the way I want. But rather than sort of sitting with that and exploring that, it, it could be tempting to just very quickly, distraction, let's entertain it, or let's sort of subdue it with uh, drink or exercise, healthy or unhealthy approaches, whatever it may be, rather than just going there. And so I think that's so powerful to have that quiet time, that silence, and and to see what bubbles up within that. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced here, that's on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep251. And if you haven't already, I hope you'll please subscribe. You'll hear from our next guest. It is Edgar Papke. And Edgar is talking all about creative confrontation and getting the best out of folks and the exchange and the team collaborations that liberate that. It's pretty respectful and eye-opening in some cool ways. So I hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.